This is Corolla Digital. Allison Rosen. Hey, you guys, it's me, Allison, from Allison Rosen. It's your new best friend. I'm sitting here with this week's guest, Duncan Trussell. Duncan, why should they listen this week? Because I have a friend whose dad works for the CIA, and I reveal some very important information that I wasn't supposed to talk about about something that's going to happen next week. Subscribe to Allison Rosen as your new best friend on iTunes or go to AllisonRosen.com. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. I love you. Allison's your new best friend. From Level 5 City in Glendale, it's This Week with Larry Miller. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and everyone who just doesn't get Halloween. Hi, folks, and welcome back to This Week with Larry Miller. I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? And again, yet again, oh, thank you, thank you, the muses, and uh, thank you, the gods and god of music. Because I'll tell you, that opening theme makes me feel better than I felt before it played. And I was feeling pretty good today, too. It's, it's, it's a lovely day here in Los Angeles. And Colonel Jeff and I did good prep work for the show. And we enjoyed being together. And Dr. Chris liked the stuff we were talking about. Well, he was sending some messages on his phone, so he didn't really hear them. But he, as he put it... He would have. He said, look, if you guys liked it, so do I. And that's the mark of a friend. And so, you know what? We all felt good. But boy, oh boy, that music gets better every week. And, of course, that's the Johnny Appleseed Orchestra and the Edna St. Vincent Millay Dancers featuring boy tenor Gary Mitchell asking the musical question, if, in a way, we're all Larry Miller... Is it okay if I come by and lay down on the couch because we need a nap? Well, first of all, Gary, no, it is not okay if you come by and lay down on my couch because you need a nap. Now, just to be extra special clear on this, if your name, instead of Gary Mitchell, if your name was Carol Mitchell or Diane Mitchell or Susan Mitchell, and if you sent a terrific note, and, of course, to our uh, website, LarryMillerPodcast.com, and if Diane or Carol or Susan sent a terrific note and a picture just to say this is who I am, and I'm just introducing myself, so here's my picture. And if you, bless your heart, Diane or Carol or Susan looked, well, fabulous, then, and, and, there's more, and if my wife had just taken the kids on a week-long baseball or football trip, and God himself comes down to my house, into my living room, and says to me, you know what, I think you're doing a good job, go ahead, Knock yourself out with Diane or Carol or Susan. And if all that happens, 
And then, Diane or Carol or Susan, you come by to the house and lay down on the couch because you need a nap. What would I say then? I would say, well, Diane or Carol or Susan, hold off on that nap. Why don't we work up a head of steam to deserve a nap? So in any case, that might, given all those qualifications, Gary, that might happen that way. But with you, I will not lie, not about this anyway. So, Gary, though, if you came by and knocked on the door and said, I need a nap, mind if I come in and lay down? The answer is, I don't think so. I don't think you can. I have a lot of writing to do, and I have to get over and do another show here with Colonel Jeff and Dr. Chris. And besides, you're a guy named Gary, so no. So, once again, Gary was wondering if, in a way, we're all Larry Miller. Is it okay if I come by and lay down on the couch because we need a nap? And, Gary, with all the affection in the world, I say back to you, no, it's not okay. Once again, if you have a friend or a sister named Diane or Carol or Susan or any other nice name and all the other stuff happens, maybe, and by Amazon. That's right, Amazon. Still the greatest company in the world because whatever you want, folks, you can go to Amazon and they will send it to you. Whatever you can possibly get in your head that you want, they have it and they can send it to you. And then do they stop there? They don't. What they do is... They send it to you, and then they send us here. They send Colonel Jeff, Dr. Chris, and me a percentage of what you order. So what what business is better than that? You get what you want, you're happy. They send you things for a profit, they're happy. They send us part of that profit, we're happy, and we put that dough towards our next big fancy fried chicken dinner. And you know what? I think that's a pretty good company. And what you do is, so by the way, just go to Amazon, but don't go to Amazon. That's the key. You don't go to Amazon. Hold your horses. What you do is you come to our website, LarryMillerPodcast.com, who's on the mountain, Tom Mix. You come to our website, and we have a banner that says Amazon. You click our banner, and then go take a nap. Then go get into your easy chair, one of those big, fluffy, lazy boys, and put a newspaper over your face and take a nap. Go take a walk and take a nap while you're taking a walk. But don't worry, because we'll get you to Amazon. It doesn't matter if it's the middle of the night. Colonel Jeff and Dr. Chris and I will awaken and get together down here at the studio, and we will get you to Amazon. So don't go there on your own. Come to us, and we will do the dirty work. And by PayPal. That's right, PayPal. And remember, our favorite way of putting it, certainly mine, is that go to your favorite bar at 2 or 3 in the afternoon when it's completely empty and no one's eating lunch, no one's having a drink. What you do is you go to your favorite bar and ask the bartender. He's not busy. He's not doing anything. He's standing behind the bar there. He's got his leg up on the speed rack, and he's doing a crossword puzzle. And you say to him, say, excuse me, 
but how much do you charge for a drink? And when he tells you what he charges for a drink, what you do is multiply that by three and send that to us. That's right. And then we get it here with Dr. Chris and Colonel Jeff and me. And that's the way you do it with PayPal. So remember, those. that's why we have two great companies as sponsors, Amazon and PayPal. Which brings us to my favorite part of the show, the joke of the week. That still tickles me and makes me smile and feel good. The joke of the week. So uh, this week, it... Uh, comes from a guy named Daniel Ockrent, and uh, he told this joke, and Colonel Jeff and I thought it was good to tell to you, because remember, the joke of the week, it really is a great thing to do. It's a great thing to pass along. Everyone likes a good joke, and if I and Colonel Jeff or Dr. Chris sometimes comes in and says, hey, I heard a joke that would be great for joke of the week, and uh, I would tell it to you, but I have to go back on this hand phone and send a message to friends. But any one of us who finds the joke, you know what? We hope you like it and you pass it along to your friends and to your family. So here we are for the joke of the week by Daniel Ockrent. Three old men, three old Jews are in the middle of New York and they've been friends for many, many years and... They Every day, it's long past when they worked, and they're all retired. Every day, they get together to sit on a little park bench, not in Central Park, but in the middle of Broadway. And this is above 59th Street, oh, somewhere around 79th Street. And in the middle of Broadway, between, well, the downtown and the uptown, they have benches sitting there on concrete islands. And the three fellas sit there, and they hang out together, and they talk, or they complain about whatever's going on. And the first one says, I can't take it anymore. It's so, being 85 years old, I, I, can't, I just can't. And, and the, the other said, well, what? What's wrong already? Just say say, say what's bothering you. He says, I can't. I, all right, well, I, you know, you know what? I, I, well, in the morning, I get up at 7 o'clock every morning. I get up at 7 o'clock every morning. And I go in to the bathroom, and I stand there to pee. And I stand there to pee, but I don't. Nothing happens. Nothing comes out. Maybe a drop or two. And I hate that. I hate that feeling. It's After a full night, I hate that nothing comes out. And it's driving me nuts, and I hate it. So I don't like going through it. At this point, it's being 85. And he sits down there. And his second friend there says to him, well, you know, I, to be honest, I have something that's bothering me, too. I can't, you know, at, at 7 in the morning, it's the same sort of thing. I, I, I get up at 7 in the morning, and I, I go into the bathroom there, and, uh, and I sit down on that toilet, and I drop my pajamas, and I sit down on that toilet, and I sit down to, well, to move my bowels. And I have to tell you, nothing happens. I feel I want to, I feel I have to, but nothing comes out. I don't like it. I feel the same way you do. I don't like being 85 and have that not happen. And the third friend is sitting there just nodding and nodding, and they turn to him and say, well, what's wrong with you? You must have something wrong also that you want to talk about today. And he shrugs and says, uh, 
Gee, I really don't. I'll, I'll be honest to you. You know, I. Uh, all right, I'll just. I'll just tell you. First of all, every day at seven o'clock, I have well. I pee. I have a huge pee, and it's a fountain of pee. It's it's a whole arced fountain of golden pee, and I. I you know, it, it it feels it feels great. And then right after the pee, just as I'm relaxing from that, I have the best bowel movement in the history of the world. And I mean, everything we were made for is all centered in that bowel movement. And it's it's huge and it's very relaxing. And I'm telling you, it's so between the, the gigantic pee and the huge bowel movement, you know, frankly, uh, there's there's. Well, that's not what I have to complain about. And they say, "Well, for what is it? What what is it that you have to complain about? You get up at se- you get up at seven. You pee, you poop, you do everything right." And he said, "Yes, but the only problem is I don't get out of bed till nine. <laughs> so there it is. Once again, by the way, a bit of a shaggy dog story that you can tell in your own way. You can add what clothes the men are wearing. You can add if they just had lunch or if one of them has a little uh, ice cream on a cone. You can add whatever you want. But that's pretty good. Thank you to Daniel Ockrent. That's a pretty good joke. And I hope you liked it on Joke of the Week. And that brings us to my my second favorite part of the show. Yes, it's the Poetry Corner. Even with that guy coughing, it still is a great poetry corner to me every single time. Boy, you just don't run into a string quartet as happy as those folks. This one is written by the great Edna St. Vincent Millay. And that's why Colonel Jeff and I thought she could run the dancers today on the show. By golly, what a great poet. And prose writer. She was Edna St. Vincent Millay, uh, born in 1892, I believe, and died in 1950. And she was one of the greatest, most well-known, most highly respected poets of the 1920s. A great time to be a poet. And she wrote this one called Love is Not All. And here it is. Love is not all. It is not meat, nor drink, nor slumber, nor a roof against the rain, nor yet a floating spar to men that sink and rise and sink and rise and sink again. Love cannot fill the thickened lung with breath, nor clean the blood, nor set the fractured bone. Yet many a man is making friends with death, even as I speak, for lack of love alone. It well may be that in a difficult hour, pinned down by pain and moaning for release, or nagged by want past resolution's power, I might be driven to sell your love for peace, or trade the memory of this night for food 
it well may be, I do not think I would. Isn't that lovely? Her view on, well, the strength, the nature of love, awfully well put. I hope you like it. Love is Not All by Edna St. Vincent Millay. Boy, oh boy. No matter what happens, she's saying, no matter what straits I find myself in, would I trade your love to make it all go away, make it all feel better? She says, I do not think I would. Good for you, Edna. And uh, we looked up, by the way, there's always something in my head that she wrote a short verse. It's just four short lines. And Colonel Jeff thought I might put it in as, well, a little addition here. It's called First Fig. And this is how it goes. My candle burns at both ends. It will not last the night. But ah, my foes and oh, my friends, it gives a lovely light. Isn't that nice? Isn't that beautiful? My goodness. I like that it makes it, she makes it hers. She says, my candle, and it burns at both ends. What word choice there? That's why we, as decent people, react to good poetry this way. And those last two lines, but ah, my foes and oh, my friends, it gives a lovely light. Everyone in her world, her foes and her friends, she's saying, let me tell you why I live the way I do. And as I said to the colonel, that has always impressed me as something. It, 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 it almost shouts that it comes from the 1920s when someone would say, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds like me. My candle burns at both ends. It will not last the night. Anyway, folks, I hope you like those two poems, Love is Not All and First Fig, by the great Edna St. Vincent Millay. And that brings us to my third favorite part of the show, 3M, the triple M, MMM, Magic Movie Moment. Yes, it's true and it's here. <laughs> Still no better use for a flute or a piano, wouldn't you like to just be the piano player that you get to go to do that last bump? Just with one finger, bump. Feel like Count Basie for a second there. Anyway, this is a wonderful movie. I hope you've seen. If you haven't, see it sometime soon. It's called North by Northwest, an Alfred Hitchcock movie from 1959. And oh, folks, what a cast. Cary Grant, Eva Marie Saint, Leo G. Carroll, Martin Landau, James Mason, so many others. And, by the way, the great Edward Platt. And I saw his name, then I remembered he's in this movie. Edward Platt, what a wonderful actor. You all know him, as a, first of all, as a serious actor. He was great in comedy, too, but as a serious, dramatic actor. He was in not only North by Northwest, but he was in Rebel Without a Cause, uh, 
and he was in so many things where he got to be serious, and it's his serious side that made him so good in what he may best be known for, which is he played the chief in Get Smart and uh, with Don Adams and Barbara Feldon and so many others who were so good. But he plays that chief perfectly. He plays him with just a short enough fuse, but he never gets too mad whenever Don Adams would say, uh, Chief, I think we need the cone of silence for for this meeting. And you could see Ed Platt, God bless him, would just uh, start to sing a little and say, I... I Max, I, I don't I don't think we uh, we need the cone of silence for this. But, of course, you couldn't out-talk Don Adams for anything. He'd always say, well, yes, Chief, I think we do, and I think I have a right to ask for it. So in any case, uh, Ed Platt, God bless him, and he's in North by Northwest, but that's not why I was mentioning it today. All his movies, as I hope you know, have... Scenes in them, whole parts in them, really just that make the movie so much better, so good, so great. And he really had such a very specific way his personality came into those movies. And this movie, folks, North by Northwest, there are scenes that have become classics in this. That even if you haven't seen the movie, you must know these scenes. Cary Grant in the middle of farm country, who was looking for a meeting he was supposed to have, and suddenly a crop-dusting plane comes by and starts to work on the crops, but then it's it's a little suspicious, and suddenly the the crop-duster, well, just turns off and chases him. And now the crop-duster is there to dust him, and Cary Grant starts to run, and you must have seen still photographs of him Cary Grant in his suit, running, well, running for his life. And that choice, these are great Hitchcock choices. And the other one of using Mount Rushmore so well. He used everything for the first time so well. He used the Statue of Liberty, remember, in another great movie. Oh, my goodness, he's so good at everything. And the best of all is the way he draws his characters and the way he lets them be and the way he lets them grow or the way he lets them get scared. And, well, Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint, who was as beautiful and as desirable and as wonderful as a, in this character she plays as she's ever been, a great, great actress. And the reason I wanted to bring up this movie is because Sometimes you just like to feel good. This is a movie that has comedy as well as drama. And I'm not going to spoil anything or give, well, anything away or tell you who lives and who dies or what happens in this. But I will say there's a great Hitchcock movie-making touch that at the end of the movie, in fact, the very end of the movie, Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint are on a big fancy train for their honeymoon. And in days when you and I would love to be in that kind of car on a train like that. So they're spending the night there, but it's not one of those it's not one of those overnight bunk where 
where you and I would still like it, where it's just a sort of a hallway there with the black curtains going over two rows of beds. It's not that they have their own suite and they have their own bed that folds down and it stays locked. Then you fold it down and even Marie Saint is in it. And then at the very end, they're talking about, well, everything they've been through. And Cary Grant sort of hops up into that open bed to join her. And right there, the movie cuts to that train at the same time, late at night, around midnight, a great shot of that train roaring into a tunnel. Now, it's a great shot, and not just for two seconds or so. I think Hitchcock holds that shot, and that's why he wanted that shot. He he always had a great sense of humor and a great sense of sexuality about his characters and about life. But to show, oh, people we love so much as characters, Carrie and Eva, and that they get together in a honeymoon bed on a beautiful fancy train, and he hops up there with her, and then right there we cut to that train, about eight or ten seconds of that train, well, going at high speed right into a dark tunnel. If you don't get that or you want further explanation, folks, I'm sorry, but you're listening to the wrong show. And it's just so wonderful to, after everything that's happened in this movie, the highs, the lows, and drama as you've never seen. It's a wonderful movie. And there's spies that are trying to save the world. And still, at the very end, we can see a great movie joke, a great visual joke like that. Two people we love, who love each other, who are about to have a honeymoon night, and there's nothing that needs to be said or shown other than that train going into a tunnel. So thank you, Alfred. Thank you, Carrie, Eva, Leo, Martin Landau, James Mason. They're all so good in this. And thank you, Ed Platt, for being so good in everything you did. And... You know what, by the way, I want to mention as long as I, I, I've, I've read the Edna St. Vincent Millay poem and uh, that we used in the front, I mentioned the, the great band leader who ran the orchestra this week was Johnny Appleseed. Johnny Appleseed. And I always wondered what that guy did exactly. I, even when I was a kid, I thought, well, what does he do? Johnny Appleseed, what does that mean? So he just walked around the country. He walked around America in the middle of the 19th century. I'm guessing that was around 1820, 1830, 1840. And he loved apples so much, what, he just planted apples and apple trees all over the country. And I never quite knew why, but today, Colonel Jeff said, we spoke on the phone just before I came to the studio, and he said, oh, by the way... We were going to start at 1 o'clock and, uh, to do prep for the show. And he said, by the way, I bought some fancy apples. And he knows that's all the way, there's anything he has to say. I love apples. I don't think I'm going to go hitchhiking around the country to plant apple trees. Although you never know. 
but I don't think so. But he said he got fancy apples at his local market, which has, and I like apples. And you've heard me talk about it before. I like, I still haven't had a good Macintosh in months and months, more than a year now. They don't get down here. I don't know why. They don't come to Los Angeles. Los Angeles has everything, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think? And they don't have them in the supermarkets anywhere around here. Anywhere. And every so often, they'll have a few. I mean a few. They'll have 10 or 20 in a very small little cutout section of their Apple area. But they have nothing else I like. And I, even the ones, I, I don't, don't even remember the names. And they're all American Apples. And that's fine with me. And well, they they go they go from ninety nine cents a pound to a dollar forty nine a pound to a dollar ninety nine a pound. Sometimes they go crazy. They're two forty nine or two ninety nine a pound. And some well sometimes I'm feeling oh the heck with it. I'll just buy the the really fancy ones. But the point is, Colonel Jeff brought in two kinds of fancy apples he just got at his store. And they had two names. One was Envy, and one was Sweet Tango. And we cut those up. We took a break after the anecdote where we start talking about, I say, here's something we could talk about today. He says, all right, how about this? And just after we did that, which is the the main core of doing the prep work on the show, and as he put it, Today, instead of falling asleep, going out cold in our chairs, which is kind of what we do every week, he said, instead of that, why don't we take a break and have an apple? And I said to him, as he already knew, well, you don't have to tell me twice. You don't have to convince me on that one. So we did. We had, we cut them up into slices, big thick slices, so four per apple. You go down one side, down the other side, down the other sides. So you have four good slices per apple. We had the Envy first, and the Envy was all right. We both agreed this is pretty good. It was a little softer, uh, a little sweet, but not very sweet, and it was just good. It was just very good, wasn't it? It wasn't fabulous. It wasn't a Macintosh. But it was good. And then we, by the way, we toasted with our slices. Whatever slices we picked up, we toasted. And why not? you got to put a little elegance into life, even in a podcast. And that's right. Jeff just held up his pinky as if that's what you're going to do. We'd be the three stooges toasting with apple slices. And then we, we picked up a slice of sweet tango. And we both agreed... It was too much, too sweet, too tart, where you you feel your teeth kind of, well, numbing and just getting a little tingling, and but not a good tingle or a good numb. And it was too sweet, too hard, and too tart, too something, too everything. But we had our slice of that. After all, it's a big fancy apple from a big fancy supermarket, so we had that one, and then we both agreed, since there was one slice left from the Envy apple, we both agreed 
Let's take out your knife, which is what he did. He just got himself a new switchblade for his birthday, which is the day before mine. And as he put it, they're, uh, well, he said, you know, they don't let you call them switchblades anymore. They, uh, they, they can't do that for some reason, so they call them now spring-assisted. Well, okay. That's, it takes a little too long to say, I think. If you're in a fight where you need a switchblade, I think it might take too long to have to say, actually, these are called spring-assisted. I think you might be spring-assisted by the time you say that. In any case, he took it out, and he sprung it, and he cut that slice, the last slice of envy, and we liked it better. That's the way we wanted to leave. And then when Dr. Chris came in, well, same thing. The colonel said to him, how about some apple? I just got some fancy apples. And as Dr. Chris put it, well, I just had a little prep work to do by going to the washroom and washing my hands. I don't suppose that's really official show business prep work, but it is to me. And you know what? Came back and Dr. Chris agreed. He said that, well, that sweet tango was too sweet and had too much tango. But the envy was just right. So we all agreed. We on the show, we on our show, we on your show agree. Fancy apples are fine. We all want Macintosh still more than anything. But today, Colonel Jeff did a good job at his fancy store and got some fancy apples. And it was a perfect break for us. And we didn't have to just fall asleep. We wanted to, but we didn't have to. In any case, by the way, it made me think, because we've just had Halloween. And you know what? That's why I started the show by saying, who doesn't really just like Halloween? Who doesn't just get Halloween? And I think I'm one of those people, and I wanted to mention this to you. I wanted to talk about it for just a second, because I don't know when people suddenly decided with Halloween... They wanted to be scared. I don't like to be scared. Now, this is in anything. There were little league coaches who were just, you know, having fun, and they'd come up behind you and, and do that, you know, boo, boogie, boogie. And I used to say to them, you know what, do me a favor. I don't like to be scared. Please leave me out of that game next time you play it. And I don't know how you are, folks. Maybe you like, if you like to be scared, congratulations. But I don't like to be scared. And I'll bet you, I'll bet you a dollar, you guys don't like to be scared either. And I remember that Halloween when I was a kid was, well, you'd dress up, you'd make it around the house, but you'd dress up like Superman. You would be a superhero. Accent on the word hero there. You'd be a hero. And, uh, you know, the, in, the, in the Mighty Mouse song, that my son, the Marine, was actually singing this this morning, that when you think of it, here we come to save the day, Mighty Mouse is on his way. But they sing there that he's going to save the day. That's one of the lyrics in that. And I love that, that, that mindset from, well, whenever Mighty Mouse was started and made, probably the late 40s, then through the 50s and through the 60s, Mighty Mouse, well... He was a hero, and when he came in to whatever that cartoon was about, he saved the day. 
He didn't get scared. He didn't want to be scared either. But I don't understand. I Because when I was a kid, we used to like these things. They would give us these empty milk cartons, that they were small milk cartons. I think they were a pint-sized milk carton that had UNICEF on it. And it was, there was a, we really thought we were doing something because we would collect, and every house knew this, they'd give you a penny, whatever candy they gave you, they'd also give you a penny for your UNICEF container. And folks, this may sound a little knuckleheaded to you, but we loved it. And uh, I think I like it still. The feeling that we were collecting and this money was going to go to children somewhere in the world, all over the world, from UNICEF. And we were collecting it. We thought we were going to save lives. And we thought we were going to make friends. And we thought all the kids in the world who got this money would love us and would love our country too. Well, that was pretty stupid. I think that was... Not true, but we thought we thought it was. I loved that about Halloween. I loved those UNICEF containers more than the candy we got too. And I love being dressed as Superman, wearing red swim trunks and getting a a blue T shirt and some blue socks. I don't remember we didn't put on well, we didn't have see, we didn't go out and spend a hundred dollars on a costume. And for the cape, well, we just, my mom would give me a towel, a red towel. And that was plenty. And with that bag in your hand and the UNICEF container in the other hand, well, you could go zipping down whatever block you were on with your arms held out as if you were going to suddenly just soar up and fly. And that's another thing that's sad to remember also. No one had to walk us around in Halloween when I was a kid. I'm not saying that's bad to do now. We walked our kids around and, well, I guess parents do that all over, but we just left our houses and you'd meet up with your friends and you'd go house to house and there were some pretty big blocks around there, but we didn't need to feel protected or be protected. And you know what? I think it's better to be like that. I wish we could do that with our kids today, too, and say there's no need to be scared of that candy because we don't like to be scared. And, uh, you know, I took my uh, kids once. There's a police station, which is very near their elementary school. And, well, very near. It's about 100 yards away, I guess. But uh, they always said they do this every year. The police station says we're having a Halloween party. During the day, on Halloween, and come on by, and there was no admission charge. But one year, I said to them, I picked them up from school, and I said, you know what, let's do that. Because we would drive by that police station, and they would say, do you wonder what that party is like? I wonder what it is. And I'd say the same thing. I wonder, too. So we said, this year, yes, let's go to their Halloween party. And folks... Boy, a lot of it was terrific. You you drive in there, and they had on the side where they would normally park police cars or where they would normally pull in cars they had pulled over and guys they had arrested. But off on the side there, they had some police cars. They had three or four police cars from the 40s and 50s, and they were in good shape. Not perfect shape, but 
those were so much fun to look at. It was like being in a movie from 1951 with police cars in it, and we could open the door and sit in them. And they were just on the ground there, and they, one, this one police car, I remember, had one of those searchlights the, that you, you turn with the hand, uh, the handle that's in the car, so you can, you can scout the whole area by turning that around. I thought, wow, that's so cool. I felt like Broderick Crawford. And you know what? That was pretty great. And they had hot dogs and sodas and potato chips. And what kid doesn't like that? Well, I guess I was thinking of myself, but what kid doesn't like that? And you know what, folks? There was a little show that the police had prepared in the station. If you got online, and we did, it was like a Disney ride. You get online on the side of the police station, and the line slowly moved in. And in the police station, they had made a Halloween show. And our little son was about four there, so I still I had him in my arms, and I was carrying him in there the whole way. It's amazing things you can do when you're a parent, by the way. I know you know this from your parents or from being a parent. But I held him. The, the wait, the meaning how long we waited, was about 45 minutes or close to an hour, as we wound our way just in the, in the in the front there just to get in to the police station. And we finally got in. And sure enough, a couple of minutes later, just walking along, and it's all black in there, all curtains. And sure enough, uh, one of the officers was behind the curtain on another side of the curtain. And he reached in through holes in the curtain to grab us. And he was wearing dishwashing gloves. And uh, that's probably pretty funny right there. But he was wearing dishwashing gloves, and he grabbed uh, my kid, the one in my arms, and did the same thing, the scary thing of boogie, boogie, boogie. And uh, he wasn't visible there, but just the hands came out. And my kid, well, you know, uh, did what I think most kids would do, most adults would do. He kind of freaked out. He went, ah, 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 ah. but it wasn't funny. He didn't like it. And he didn't like it, and I didn't like it. And the other kid was just behind us, and so I said, "We, you know, we we walked on to the next thing, whatever the next thing was going to be." And I said to the one I was holding, the little one, I said, "Listen, I'm not crazy about that stuff either. If you wanna, if you want, you know, we're having fun. If you want, we can just call it quits here and just uh, scoot out at the next uh, side door and get another hot dog and some more potato chips and sit." sit in the police car again. And he said, that sounds good to me. And I said to our other son, who was seven then, he's the one who's the Marine now, and I said to him, you want to come with us? You want to go through this? And he said, no, I'll go through it. I'd like, I'd like to go through it. Okay, fine. We'll see you afterwards. And we scooted out. And you know what, though? it something I remembered for always that why it's the same thing with Halloween in general. Why do we all feel we want to be scared or have to scare? Wouldn't it have been great just to be in a Superman uniform and to have another can of soda with that? And the whole concept of Halloween, folks, you know what? I was, uh, I was asked when I was starting out as a comic at the comic strip in New York, I was seen by some folks from Studio 54. Now, I had never been to Studio 54, and this was, at, I think, the height of it 
of its popularity. As you know, you must know that that place was huge for about five years, ten years, I guess. And I think this is right in the middle of it. And they said to me, they came to see uh, some comics at the comic strip, and they were very nice. They came up to me afterwards, and we sat down and talked, and they said, we'd like you to be in our comedy show, not to perform, not to be on stage, not to do that, but we're going to put on some little little sketches or to put on little little plays or little scenes as people are walking in for Halloween, and we'd like you to be part of that. And uh, this was a paying job, too. This was $75 each of us got, which, again, that may not sound like much to you, but, yeah, that's good money. You say, hey, how do you like that? 75 bucks. I'll see you there. And we got dressed. We went down to Studio 54 when it was still light out, so we went down there about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And my job, my part, my angle in this was they had a lot of booths set up that people couldn't see. And as they walked into Studio 54 from the door on the street till they got to the dancing area there and the big giant dance hall, and that was a longish walk. Normally, it's a very wide hallway, and normally it'd be, I guess, about 100 feet long. And what they did was they also rebuilt it and put up giant floor-to-ceiling black curtains and doors and walls. And they had some very interesting things. On one door, I remember it was on the right, you you would open it up, and they had a room made of trapezoids. Now, you would look at it through giant glass. Well, it wasn't, the glass wasn't that big. But trapezoids means also when they put the small corners together, and they did, Everyone seemed to grow inside there when they walked over there. And when they walked over to the side where everything was larger, they got a little smaller. And what they did was, as you looked through this glass, they hired seven or eight actors who were little people, midgets. And they they uh, they hired them, and they were all formally dressed, too. They were in tuxedos and gowns. And they were having a formal dinner inside their little booth there that was lit a certain way. And they were, oh, Rock Cornish game, hem, game hens, and uh, meaning they were very small chickens. So they were eating in slow motion. They would pick one part up and take a bite and then slowly pick the napkin up and wipe their lips. It was very specific and it was very directed. It was very well rehearsed. And then another uh, was, as you'd pass uh, an oil painting of a duke or a lord from 500 years ago, and they had that was uh, they had behind that in the actor area behind that they had an actor standing on a soapbox, and he was looking through the eye holes of the duke, and that was to be a little spooky. That oh look, that's the eyes are following you. And mine was, they made me, they wanted me to be, uh, well, a severed head on a platter. So when you opened my door, it was a fancy table set, not a huge one. It was about five, six feet long and about four feet wide. And in the middle, I was on a silver platter. Of course, I was underneath the table with just the head poking through and a garnish around my neck. 
and uh, sort of some some kind of thing around the head too, uh, like an old Roman. Well, uh, well, what's that word? Whatever it is, but uh, and then they had a bottle of champagne in a bucket, and they had a plate of oh fancier food. They had chicken and shrimp and fruit on the on the platter. And the job was, they said to me, we want you to insult people as they open the door and look at you. So you're the severed head who insults people. And I said to them, honestly, I'm not really an insult guy. I don't, I don't do, do, do that very well. I don't, uh, I don't exactly know how to do that. And they were this classic producers kind of thing. They said, oh, you'll be fine. And so that was, which is okay with me too. They had hired me. So, all right, I was going to insult people. And it was fun. We had a job there. I remember, by the way, I remember one time a guy opened my door and he was there and he had a tuxedo on and his date had a gown on and they were both, well, you'd say two handsome and pretty people. And he looked at me and he said something to me and I said something to him, you know, and I was smiling and then he just... He just glanced at the champagne in the bucket, then back at me, and then just reached over and took the champagne out of the bucket and walked away. And so he and his girlfriend now had a bottle of champagne, and they closed the door. But I'm still just the head on the plate. I can't really move, so all I could do was go, hey, 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 hey. It's not my champagne, but you shouldn't take the severed head's champagne. If you want, have a piece of shrimp. At any rate, though, the guy who played... The moving eyes in the portrait was standing next to me. His booth was next, not next, it was about 10, 12 feet away. But he was standing on the cate and he was looking through the curtain and he was, remember, he was the moving eyes from the Duke's portrait. And folks, every night, all night long, about every three minutes or so, this guy would sort of rear back, jerk his head back, cover his eyes with his hand and just say, ow, ow, don't do that. People were poking him in the eyes. People were leaning over and using the two, and again, it's like a Three Stooges thing. They're using the two, the index finger and the middle finger to go boink. But that that hurts. It's the guy. You're, if you're the guy, but like a classic actor, which is a compliment to him, he would... Whew, he would shake his head and blink his eyes a couple of times and look over at me and just shrug and say, boy, these people are just nuts. But then you know what he did? He would take a breath, let it out, and, and lean back in again. He didn't stop. He didn't go over to any one of the producers or the directors and just say, look, this is nuts. I'm keeping the money, but I don't want to be poked in the eyes. Make me a butler or something that I can guide people into the dancing room. But I'll never forget that part. Every three minutes, you'd hear the boink and ow. And he'd lean back and rub his eyes. And uh, the highlight of the evening for me was that one time the door opened and there was a a short, fat, uh, well, kind of oily-looking guy in, uh, in a tuxedo, in a handmade tuxedo. And the tuxedo was... Well, fitting, but he was a he was a beefy guy. This guy was looked like to be about five feet tall, both ways, and he was there with two dates, 
not one date, two dates, and they were New York models. And they were not five feet tall. They were about six feet tall. And with heels, that made them 6'2 or 6'3. And each one of them had one of his arms. And the three of them opened that door and looked at me. And I smiled and said, well, it's good to see you. And uh, I don't think uh, he could speak English really well. He was from an oil country. And he was really rich. And he had a date with these two young women there. But one of the women said to me, she was a blonde. She was really good looking. And she looked at me, the severed head on the plate, and she just said, what would you do if I got under that table and, well, and then she said something I'm not going to say to you. Uh, You can guess it. And you know what? Whatever your guess is, you'll be right. That's what she said. What would you do if I did this. And uh, I looked back at her and just said, gee, I guess I'd be helpless. (laughs) And I thought that was kind of funny, and I smiled. And the three of them just looked at me and then closed the door. And that was that with them. So, you know what? I'm just here to say to you, folks, I'm glad we have Halloween. If you like to be scared, that's fine with me. I don't want to be scared. I'd rather we all went back to dressing like Superman and Tinkerbell and those sorts of things that I remember from my childhood. And so always remember, as you know, Homer is Homer and Pluto is a planet. If you like the show, tell a friend. But remember, as always... If you walked out of bed today and had a job to go to and a home to come back to and someone there who cares about you, folks, the game's over and you've won. And that's still the truest thing I know, Halloween or not. Join us here again next week. And if you like the show, tell a friend. We'll see you then.